Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Um, 
Um, the goal is to actually continue this activism because um, we're going to be, the WCAPS is going to be partnering with STEM Institute and the Institute um, and uh, a couple other uh, organizations and individuals to continue this conversation and see if there's practical ideas and steps and ways forward um, to try to address this issue. I think there's been studies that have been done on these issues so we want to incorporate some of the analysis and conclusions that have been made by some of the studies on diversifying the field overall uh, to women in terms of um, color and see what we can learn from those things and see if there are practical steps that we can lay out that we can um, tell people about things that they should consider and try to diversify the field. Um, the first panel, a couple of the things I passed out some flyers about the caps, and there's also some little note cards that's on the middle table. If you want to join the membership, please do that. The first panel is going to be a number of um, colleagues and people who I have respect for both think tanks um, and foundation, but also we have a Government representative Michelle that a lot of work in this field to try to diversify um, the area of collaboration. So I'm really looking forward to this first panel. And then the second panel is going to be a number of young people who are in the field, between the field, who are interested in the field. And just chapter about how they got into it. My own story um, is a bit of a surprise that we didn't even plan on making this message. And then there's similar stories about the what lessons can complement the stories about people who had to mentors who introduced them to the issue of the issues. It wasn't for that person, that person would have not had to do it at all. people who told stories about I'm the only person of all my friends who care about this issue. And it's a challenge for me to stay in it because I don't see many things um, that they think is much more interesting and also very, very important uh, to everyday life. So, um, yeah, we'll hear about some of that as well. Um, what I'd like to do is introduce uh, our first moderator. I want to make it clear that these are not, obviously, this is not a panel, a distribution panel. This is more of a conversation. We invite you to be part of the conversation. And so we will have time for questions, but we're asking our moderators, Leah and Brian, to moderate the First, I would like to introduce our first panel. Actually, I'm going to ask uh, Brian to, to introduce the panel for the <laughs> But I would like to welcome Brian into the stage or some of the stage. He's a CEO of students and students. It's a real pleasure to have Brian for many, many years, as I know many of the panelists for many years. So it's really great for her. You're so sweet. together and of course Richard for uh, welcoming us here to your home 
as our host uh, here today. We know, of course, that uh, encouraging diversity in the workplace is not just the right thing to do, but study after study has proven that it facilitates innovation, that it, uh, that it creates a very different and very positive workspace. For those of you that may have spent uh, a little bit of time uh, at, uh, at the Simpson Center, you know that we're not really a typical looking think tank, that we have quite a very broad, quite a broad uh, age diversity. We have diversity in terms of our racial makeup. We have uh, a very good representation. In fact, my wife often criticizes me and says, we need to hire more men in that organization. And then 70% of our senior uh, director assistants uh, are female, which is very, as you are quite aware, peculiar for uh, an organization, a think tank that works on, on, uh, on national security issues. Uh, we view this not just as, as I say, the right thing to do to encourage this diversity, but in fact we've come to look at it as part of our, in fact, competitive advantage in the, wide, in the wider think tank environment. We believe that that diversity is what makes us unique and what really gives us, I think, an edge uh, oftentimes in this town, in this space that, uh, that, we, uh, that we compete in. So we're going to talk about all of those uh, all of those things. But let me just say that, uh, you know, as smug as we may be at Stimson uh, in, in our diversity, and we can always be doing more, and we all should be working to do more, um, I also am part of a secret club, Michelle, that, is, that meets annually. It's, a, it's the gathering of think tank presidents. And yes, that gathering is as exciting as your imagination is conjuring up uh, right now. Um, and I will tell you that as I sit around that table, and that table looks a lot like me, and me plus 30, 30 years, uh, and I will tell you that around that table, no one has ever said, you know what, diversity is not a good thing, or I don't see the value in this. Or, I think everyone around that table does recognize that there is value. Uh, they also recognize that we have a problem in this industry, that it is uh, a challenge that has extended back uh, you know, many, many decades, uh, clearly, uh, across, uh, across the center. The challenge, I think, for many, and this may be controversial for me to say, but we're going to work through all of this again, they don't know what to do about it. We don't know what to do. What are the pragmatic activities that we can do? Some of it, and there are restrictions. Some of it is budgetary. Some of it is they're tactical. That they literally do not know kind of how to kind of widen the aperture uh, and, and encourage diversity across uh, across uh, across this industry. So I really do, Bonnie, commend you for picking up this uh, challenge and uh, and encouraging us in a very pragmatic way and essentially help spoon feed us and that wider group on how we can, uh, as I say, uh, uh, meet the objectives of your new organization and meet the objectives I think that we should all share, which is, again, encouraging greater diversity, not because just it's the right thing to do, but because it does uh, encourage that innovation and, uh, and improvement across the center. So in order to facilitate that conversation this morning, uh, Bonnie has pulled together, along with Richard, uh, this blockbuster panel that is uh, that is sitting that is sitting uh, uh, to my left, and I am going to do. Well, their bios are available, so I will not belabor this. I will uh, just uh, very uh, quickly run down so you know uh, for those of you who do not uh, who is uh, who is with us. Uh, so on the far side uh, is Alex Tom. 
Alex is the executive director of the Peace and Security Funders Group. She has a great experience for this conversation. She spent time in the private industry, in the NGO sector, uh, in philanthropy, in government. She's done it all. She can't keep a job. Um, but she is one of the coolest people in Washington, D.C., so I'm really pleased that uh, Alex will be here to, uh, to join us. Uh, to us here today. Michelle Dashpole is the Deputy Director of uh, Nuclear Export Controls at NNSA, the National Nuclear Security Administration of the Department of Energy. Uh, Michelle, we should all be very grateful for your government service and for you being here uh, today. Thank you for joining us. Richard Weitz, our host, is the senior fellow here at the Hudson Institute. Thank you again, uh, Richard, for welcoming us to your home. And Michelle Dover is in the house. Uh, Michelle leads uh, grant making at uh, Pleasures Fund, um, and again, has uh, a wide experience in this space and is going to help us, particularly those of us in the nonprofit industry, understand what grant makers are looking for, which is maybe the most important message that we all hear uh, 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 today. So, uh, I'm going to, as Bonnie mentioned, we, we really don't want this to have a, this is not a panel discussion where they're going to, we're all going to bloviate you at you uh, uh, But instead, we're just going to facilitate a conversation. And that conversation is going to involve all of you. So this is participatory. We are going to expect all of you to, uh, to, uh, to participate as much as our, uh, as our colleagues up here at the front uh, of the room uh, before maybe we draw you into that conversation. Michelle, I want to start with you, if I may. Um, so you're sitting in government, you're dealing with a, uh, one of the most consequential issues of our time, the, the non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, particularly uh, nuclear weapons. Why is this a particularly important issue? In this space, when you are you know, uh, uh, aiming at such a consequential national security mission, why is this issue of diversity such an important issue that you're wasting time with us this morning to come and talk about it? Well, first, let me, uh, well, thank you for having me here, Bonnie and, and Hudson. Um, first, let me give a little bit of background about uh, what we do uh, in defense nuclear nonproliferation at NSA. So that will help inform uh, my answer. So uh, the very basic mission is to prevent uh, nuclear and radiological materials, as well as the equipment and the know-how from getting into the hands of bad actors who would use them to make uh, WMD or, or dirty bombs. So that's a very basic description. Now we have a number of complementary programs to help us uh, implement our, our mission. So we've worked with foreign partners, foreign countries to install radiation detection equipment at airports, seaports, other border crossings. We have worked with foreign countries to strengthen physical security, material accountancy at nuclear facilities and store or use nuclear radiological materials. Uh, my, own, well, my own office, uh, we work with foreign countries to strengthen their export controls so that uh, dual-use items or commodities, things that could be used, have both civilian and military use, uh, don't get, don't illicitly leave uh, their country. And we also have an R&D uh, arm that works on detection, monitoring, and verification technologies and supports their we also work to reduce uh, the use of uh, weapons usable materials, highly enriched uranium and plutonium. That said, so, you know, I just mentioned some of our programs, not all. On any, in any given year, we're working with over 50 countries across our division. 
Um, these issues are technically complex. Uh, so for these reasons, uh, we need a diversity of approaches, uh, both in our R&D space. Uh, we also work in order to get access to facilities, in order to do our work with foreign partners, we need to negotiate memorandum of understanding, statements of intent, action sheets. We need people to understand uh, both the political, economic, security currents in these regions that we work in. And so for these re all these reasons, we do need a diversity of thought and opinions and approaches. So that's why it's important. Thank you. Um, so Michelle Dover, for the purposes of this, and your name is Perfect. Same question. So, like, as you in, in, the, in the philanthropic space, in the foundation world, you similarly are looking out, obviously, and uh, and trying in certain ways. So how important is this in your community, and what kind of are you doing about it? So, first of all, thank you um, to those for this. This is a really fantastic um, place for a discussion. We're really excited to be able to join. Um, you know, so for, I think I should differentiate, you know, when you talk about foundations, right, there's a lot of foundations out there with a variety of issues. Um, some foundations have already incorporated diversity lenses into their work. Um, I would say that the, the security space, it, it's different. I mean, I would say that all of the foundations do care, um, and you do have a track record of um, foundations like Ford who started initiatives many years ago to try to figure out how you um, diversify the field. And at the core of it is this sense, um, kind of along the lines of what McKinsey studies found, is that you get better ideas when you have more diverse teams. They serve a wider population, they're more sustainable, in part because of how ideas are generated. And so it becomes an issue of organizational strength. It becomes an issue of you know, how well those ideas are going to float in the market if you think of you know, the NGO space um, as more of a market. And so for us, it, it is important. Um, I would say that we haven't, for, from plowshares, it's not something that we've um, deliberately incorporated into our work until the past couple of years. And so we're looking at ways of how you can um, encourage that diversity um, recognizing that where money goes and who receives the money does impact who's in the field and who's doing work. And so, well, Alex, maybe I can go to you on that just to build off of uh, Dover's point here. Um, uh, you, you sit at the hub, obviously, of a much wider network of, uh, of, of philanthropic funders. Is this a wider trend you're seeing across the industry, and how do you communicate it? Is it uh, across the center? Uh, yes and no. Um, so, so yeah, so the Peace and Security Funders Group, we're a funder network, 63 foundations and philanthropists. Our mission is to enhance the effectiveness of uh, funding in this sector. Uh, we, at our last annual meeting, which was about a month or so ago, we had our only plenary session on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the importance of, of that in our sector. And you all touched on a lot of the reasons why we're doing this. So I won't belabor those points, um, just to echo and agree with them. Um, and our folks uh, in our network are at different starting points. Um, so there are some, like the Ford Foundation, a member of our network, MacArthur, who's funding this, um, perhaps, you know, have, have the expertise and capacity in-house to, to be a little bit more advanced. They have, you know, folks in their HR department, they have folks um, looking through a DEI lens. 
there's some of the smaller funders perhaps that are you know just don't have the internal capacity, um, which is where we come in. So um, we're right now looking at what is our role in this space. What is the role of both the four-person uh, nonprofit PSFG as well as the wider network uh, across our members? Um, what I would say is that um, everyone, as I think you said, everyone and Michelle Dover uh, echoed, uh, folks in this space recognize that we need to do something. We just don't know exactly what it is, what our role is, what we could be doing, how fast we could be doing it, what are the different things internally and externally that we could be doing. And so um, we're figuring that out um, with our members hand in hand. And what I would say is that there, are, I would just say that um, uh, patience is critical because you are at sort of different levels and folks are starting at different um, starting points, but complacency is not okay. So we need to be doing something and chipping away a little bit somewhere, however, wherever, you got to start somewhere. So that's sort of where we're at right now is folks recognize that there's, there's a problem. Um, and what does that look like to address it as a whole? Is that second sort of part two conversation? This could be Michelle, maybe I can come to 
you and maybe ask you how lonely is this inside the U.S. government and, you know, what are some of the challenges that you have seen, uh, either witnessed firsthand or, or witnessed, uh, you know, other, others as they try to break into the field. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about sort of the very macro level challenges of others? Uh, uh, sure. So I think one of, one of the main challenges is getting the word out to our young people that you know, this is a viable career option for them. Uh, that, and they need to see people in the field that look like them who are working in the field and succeeding in the field. So getting the word out is, I think, is one of the main challenges. And then we in government, uh, we can get diverse pools qualified candidates for positions, it's hiring. It comes down to the hiring. You can do outreach uh, to universities and colleges, even outreach to you know middle and high school students, but then it comes down to someone looking at the you know resumes on their desk and making a decision. So those I think those are some of the, the challenges. I think and I'll uh, and if you want to talk about some of the things we're doing uh, and in the same right now, we want sure. to wait for. Yeah, no, no. So, um, you know, I just want to highlight a couple of programs that we have in place at uh, NNSA. Um, one is our NNSA Graduate Fellowship Program. Now, this is a, a year-long paid fellowship, which is the nice thing in this town. Um, and it really, we bring in folks with a graduate degree to work hand in glove with, you know. Folks who are working on programs that I, I described earlier, and uh, our fellows are based either here in Washington at headquarters or out of their site offices uh, in New Mexico and California. Um, and we really encourage, we've been trying to diversify the pool of candidates for that program because it is an important theater program. Um, <coughs> In this room right now, there's several <laughs> graduates of that uh, program that I've worked with and know about, and it's it's it feeds not just our organization but also the interagency, people of state, defense, NGOs, uh, private sector. So if we can diversify, use that program to to bring you know greater number of uh, candidates into the field, I think that's a real win-win, uh, I have to say. I went through all the resumes. It's a very competitive program uh, and was very pleased for incoming class uh, when I went through the resumes uh, last year, late last year. Probably one of the most diverse pool of candidates we've had. And that's because we really try to do outreach uh, to a number of universities, uh, including uh, minority servicing institutions, uh, and widen our outreach to universities, not just on the coast, but across the country. And I think we're, we're starting to see the benefits of that and that we, we really have a good pool of, of candidates uh, coming in. The other program uh, that we'll, we have is the Minority Servicing Institutions Partnership Program. And I have to say before I, I talk about it, this will make more sense, while we have technical folks at our headquarters who implement or work, we also rely heavily on the DOE and NSA national laboratories. We have 17 laboratories across the country. They, they have the technical expertise we need to implement our programs. So the MSIPP program works with minority servicing institutions 
to kind of build pipelines and partnerships between them and international laboratories. And so we work with about 40 MSIs, um, and we've given them grants to develop new curricula, to give their students opportunities in areas like cybersecurity, advanced manufacturing, uh, material and energy science. So those are some of the ways uh, that we've, we've been addressing this, this issue. That's helpful. I want to come back to you um, in a minute here because it's, it's, I mean, you're talking about basically stoking the pipeline, right? It's getting in, you know, as early as possible to generate that interest in, uh, in the work. And I want to come back to that point a little bit more when we talk about uh, tactical level solutions to some of these challenges. But don't yeah, worry. can I you, add a couple things? I mean, when you start the pipeline, that's you have to right get the, the, the right mix, the right as many people as you can into it. But one of the challenges this field faces is the leaky pipeline. It's there isn't a clear career path, and you may not have the mentors. And you know, especially in the NGO sector where pay is not as good as it can be in other places, there's a lot of incentives to leave the field and go somewhere else. And you know. That means losing hard-earned talent, you know, from the perspective of a foundation or you know those leading some of these organizations. The other piece of it, though, I want to touch on is when you talk about scoping the problem. I'm not quite sure how well we have it scoped. Um, so last year's time, when we started, you know, our initiative, and we look primarily at gender, um, but we try to recognize that gender is a wedge that you can use to talk about a range of diversity issues is that um, we didn't know how many of our grants went to women-led projects and women-led organizations. So we had to start with a, we had to create a baseline. Um, and we found it was about 35%. And once we had that, we said, okay, three years, let's get to 50. And everything going according to plan within a couple of weeks, I should be able to say, will be up to above 40% of our grants going to women-led projects and women-led organizations. Numbers aren't everything, right? Um, but you do have to start picking a few areas that you can say, let's put some effort into it, let's be intentional, um, and then keep track of how it goes. So, you know, I would say in, in scoping the problem and what we can learn, that was one of the first pieces we found in, uh, from other institutions that have worked on this. The first recommendation was collect the data and disaggregate it so that you know exactly what you're um, Alex, uh, let's just keep with this theme for, for a minute if we can. Um, you know, as I said at, at the outset of the panel, that it, you know, encouraging diversity is logical, I think, to most organizations, but it's not always intuitive. It's not intuitive in terms of how you actually, you know, what, what do I do? Um, so before we lead further into that, I want, again, I want to come back to, uh, to Dover's point as well, but um, in terms of kind of what you're witnessing uh, across the industry as some of the macro level challenges, those barriers, what does that look like? Uh, just to echo what Michelle was saying, um, it's, is it, uh, in peace and security specifically, is it a pipeline problem? And I think Bonnie, you and I have spoken a little bit about this. And if it is, why? If it's not, what are the other problems? Um, are, is there a paucity of diverse candidates? Um, why is that? and sort of working backwards from there. That's the biggest, um, one of the biggest challenges. And then secondarily, and again, something that Bonnie and I have talked about um, at length is retention. And, and, and Michelle, you alluded to it, um, that there aren't sort of pathways, there, there isn't a lot of um, uh, opportunity to, to advance. And so 
and other factors, lots of other factors that um, we've spoken about. So how do we bring folks in and then keep them in um, and, and push them up um, to you know to get to a Simpson level? You know, seventy percent leadership is led by by women and um, folks of, of color. So so it's kind of both, um, and I think. Yeah, I mean, in the funding sector, we do talk about metrics as well. So I think I would be remiss not to say we need to figure out how do you, how are you tracking these things? So numbers are important because it helps you make a case. Um, so what makes sense to track? How do you track it? How do you benchmark it? Um, think all those sorts of things. But we actually have within the Peace and Security Funders Group, we have this spreadsheet called Spreadsheets. Um, and it's a choice points spreadsheet. So there are lots of different choices you make every day, and you can be taking different lenses to the choices you make, be it you know where you advertise, how you advertise, the language you use when you advertise, um, to how you hire. Um, literally, like, are you are, are folks looking at people's names, where they went to school, does that matter, does it not matter? Um, to what you pay what you pay people, how you advance people. Um, what your panels look like, where are you hosting your panels, who's providing the food, everything. I mean, there's internal things or external things that you can be looking at and using this sort of lens throughout. So it's it's a lot, and I think you just, like I said, you've got to start somewhere, so take on what's both meaningful and do it doable for your institution. Richard, do you have any thoughts on this, on this particular subject in terms of sort of the, the so the barriers that you have sort of seen standing on the other side looking in on this world. Any thoughts on, on Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what our, our colleagues have said is basically what, what I've seen, that you know, when I was in school, uh, the main challenge was to remove discrimination against uh, women and other groups. So my mother was my PhD, and people were criticizers, they should stay home with your family, and so on and so We get rid of all that hope, there, and I haven't heard that one in a while. And so, uh, our, the, 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 my, the, my institution, we basically, I, I just haven't really thought about this issue for, we have an extensive interview program that we do a lot of work on a lot of topics, a lot of people, uh, but when I look through resumes, I'm looking for language skills, uh, first background, subject interest, I didn't really care if it's male, female, uh, African-American or other minority, and often I don't know the gender of the, the person until I'm asked right away, like, because it's an Um But maybe, you know, maybe this isn't good enough. You know, maybe, uh, you know, I, I need to get a better sense of you know, what, what the results are. Um, I think we're probably tracking the same as, as most groups. You know, we have 15-50 gender. Um, we have certain people here at the program have become African-American, Latin-American women. Um, but it's sort of awareness on that hazard. It would be useful to understand better the challenges and then look for uh, fixes. What I like about the topic, which I really attracted when the ambassador mentioned to me, was unlike a lot of the issues that I deal with, you know, how to improve cooperation in Russia and the U.S. on, um, on, on uh, Iran or something like that, uh, this, this problem strikes me as actually you can do actual things with it. You know, you a lot of stuff we do in the other topics, we can raise the issue, we can clarify, but there's so many things beyond our control that affect it. It's hard to trace out the specific. Something like this, it's, it's pretty narrow. You the data, you can think of the solutions. It actually makes the problems. That's why I thought it would be useful to, to address. So, uh, I mean, thanks for your candor on that. And I want to pick up the panel's on the point that you made and just invite anyone here on the panel to react to it. Um, 
specifically, you know, as you as you talk about kind of scoping the problem, but we really don't know how big the problem is or how invasive or insidious it is in truth. Uh, and that's true of government, it's true of philanthropic world, it's true of NGOs, it's true of private sector. Um, so have, do you have a sense, does anyone have a sense, or can you give us leads on you know, efforts, have you done any work, or have you seen work, Alex, others, uh, in terms of scoping that problem and finding out what those true tangible barriers are so that, as you say, we can focus our efforts and, and hopefully be successful? I, I haven't. Um, we have amongst uh, the nuclear funders, we, um, so the Peace and Security Funders group uh, hosts a variety of working groups, one of which is nuclear, apropos for this audience, yeah, and Michelle is on that group, um, as are uh, others um, in, in the nuclear funding field. And one of the things that we were looking at is as a, as a group, sort of where, where are we as just, you know, narrowly nuclear funders on, um, on we were looking at gender through um, your program, so maybe you can say more about that, but. Yeah, so, you know, we've, I think there's been more work done in the nuclear space on gender. Um, CNAS has put out some really good studies on, uh, a really good study recently on um, what the barriers were to moving getting into the field. Um, you know, New America, Heather Rolbert, has also written extensively on this, had some really great recommendations um, in a recent arms control today issue. Um, you know, and for us, where we're starting with is actually just looking at, you know, if we look at who submits the proposal, who needs it. And then also their organization, their partner organization, who needs it. And then, um, you know, coding that internally and then hopefully being transparent in the coming years of actually saying, this is the percentage of our grants. Um, but what we will start doing is actually, you know, recognizing that can be very problematic, is asking those submitting the proposals to provide that information. Um, actually start, you know, creating a set of data that, that we can work with. Um, again, recognizing it isn't everything. Um, and I would say, you know, as we get into this, what has been, you know, it all started with one question and it's kind of led to a whole bunch of things. Um, but what's been really helpful is the work that PSG has done because I think the one thing I've learned through this is you don't do it by yourself. Um, and people, you know, your colleagues have good ideas. And it's not just the colleagues who lead organizations. I mean, if you want to get a scope of the process, the problem, We'll talk to people who've been affected by it, and they'll tell you, no, it's it's real. Here are the challenges I have faced. Um, you know, here's where I don't know whether this answer or this decision was something that was bureaucratic, whether there were elements of racism, whether there were elements of sexism. You know, but I can tell you, these are the things that did not feel right, or that I encountered and my colleagues didn't. And you can start from there, getting some of the quality of texture to the problem, um, as well as marrying that with the quantitative. And I, and I think the final piece that I remind myself is this field is, uh, while we will pride ourselves on being unique, we are still a part of American culture. The things that are going on right now, the discussions that are happening in the broader culture are playing out here, and they affect us and we affect them. It's not, you know, we're you know, on a hill somewhere. So, um, I don't know if that... No, it's, ex it's extremely helpful, and I will say that's that storytelling, that sort of sharing of, I mean, uh, these brave women who have stood up in the Me Too movement have been such a remarkable, sort of eye-opening experience for we who kind of live in a much more privileged space. Um, you know, I will tell you uh, from experience, uh, you know, when I took on my current 
position and began having conversations with senior directors uh, across the organization and females who live in a, I had no idea, you live in a completely different world than I live, right? That, it, that we've not, you know, solved that problem by any means uh, on the gender side. Um, and it, it, it's been an eye-opening experience and I'm so grateful to you all who are willing to stand up and say, here's my habit, here, to, to, because it is, I think it helps the rest of us kind of have a better understanding uh, of, uh, of, of the complexity and, uh, as I say, insidiousness of the, of, of the wider challenge. But before we slide into a complete um, uh, uh, dark place here, uh, I, I think it is, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's helpful that you know, the sharing the success stories and uh, you know, demonstrating what works and then replicating what works, I think, is 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 one clear pathway. I think to a much more uh, diverse and uh, uh, inclusive workspace. So, Michelle Dashball, I'm going to come back to you if I may, um, and ask you. You know, so you mentioned a couple of programs that uh, that NSA has. Um, has has initiated. Can you, can you say a little bit more about kind of the success stories that we've seen? Kind of that the benefit of that. Are we starting to see what has worked basically uh, in, in some of these programs and others that you may have been used to? Sure. So um, I have to say I've been at NSA. I was at DOA before NSA was created. So I'm dating myself, and I've, I've been at NSA basically about 17 years now. Um, but you started when you were six, though. <laughs> 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 um, but what I found from my own experience um, is that I had to be proactive, seeking out opportunities, and talking to mentors. I, I think getting back to what's been said by some of the other panelists, um, mentoring and networking are key parts of this. Uh, because, and as some of your best mentors may be pure mentors. I want to. I think. I think back to my own career and turning points, and these were friends in college and grad school who said, "Hey, you found out this," and I had not. That got me into the field. I started off at the Ford Foundation, actually, and so uh, this was in the late '90s, and we were probably the only wonder uh, funding a lot of the NGOs doing work in this space. Um, and then I went to, to DOE after that, and that was because my, my boss at Ford knew people at DOE and introduced me. And so I'm definitely a product of this networking, mentoring, and I think it's key to continue those. We need to, I'm also part of the International Career Advancement uh, Program, which is a network of uh, people of color in the international affairs fields, government, NGOs, private sector. Um, and. It's a great network because you know if you're thinking of a career change, you can shoot out an email to folks, and usually there's someone in the network who can help you. And that's I think that's key uh, to kind of moving your career forward. Uh, and having having a mentor, and a mentor, your best mentor may not be within your own organization. I've had mentors from outside my organization. You can speak honestly, you can speak a little more frankly with them uh, about challenges and. These are the things we have to have in place for, for young people, or young people and mid-career people. Uh, some of the mid-career people, how do you get to the next level? If you're in the government, how do you get to the senior executive service? So I think the mentoring and the networking are key. And 
what I discourage folks to do, I, I don't do enough of it myself, is take a young person to lunch, take a young person out for coffee, tell your story, ask them you know, what they want to do. You'll find out a lot about them. Maybe you're not the best mentor for them, but you can identify someone who can help them. And so I think these things are key, and it's spending time with people to learn about their stories and, and, how, you can, and how you can help. That's really helpful. Um, Success stories. What's worked? Have you seen things that have worked? Uh, we just we PSFG just started on our sort of organizational and network uh, I would say journey um, uh, in this space, and so not yet. The one the one thing I can think of, and my colleague Jen is here, so perhaps she can think of something else. Um, not going to put you on the spot, but if you think of anything, shout it out. Um, I was going to say our current fellow. Um, uh, we did a very concerted effort to not sort of send it out to our own networks. Um, so we went outside of our own networks. Um, we paid $15 an hour, which is a lot. Um, it's above a living wage in D.C. Um, <clears throat> we went out and we um, talked at a lot of sort of local universities as well as partnering with um, different programs around the country and got a lot, a lot of really great, diverse applicants. Um, and that was us, we're a tiny four-person nonprofit, and we've never had this kind of uh, diverse applicant pool before. But it, it, it was a lot of work, but it's worth it because you, you get that. And so that's, for me, that's a success story of an internal sort of management success story. Um, and our fellow started last week, and he's great. He already finished all these summer projects, and so we're like, oh man, what else? <laughs> um, so great, on um, both ends, internally and externally. So that's the first one. Um, but like I said, we um, just launched our DEI initiative last week. So, and so come back in a year, and I'll give you some more success. So let me follow up with you. I'm going to ask you a personal question. We're going to get real now. Let's uh, get Tom, um, For your own career, so you've had this quite remarkable career that has, as I mentioned, that the PFS had taken you from the private sector, through the NGO, through government, through... So tell me what your... Michelle sort of shares because sort of this mentorship concept. Yeah. What has worked for you? How did you manage to climb up? Yeah, mentors. Four um, mentors from grad school, and um, every time I was kind of itching to get a, you know, try a different sector, try a new job, um, I contacted them, took them out to lunch, uh, and so, you know, they're very senior, um, actually all white men, but um, uh, that's, you know, who my grad school professors were, so um, anyway, um, but, you know, took them out to lunch, asked them for their advice and help in sort of figuring out what next for me, and that sort of what opened up doors for me to sort of explore. I never thought philanthropy, never. I have a master's in national security. Um, uh, didn't think I would work on the Hill, didn't think I would work in the private sector, but sort of with their guidance and mentorship um, and help sort of opening the door, I, I was able to try different things and sort of ping pong up um, in my career. So that's so I would 100% echo what you said. And I actually, for myself, um, I, um, I try as much as I can, as much as my schedule allows to meet with um, young people for coffee, lunch, even just like an informational 15 minute, 20 minute phone call. Um, even if I don't personally know them, someone recommends them or they find me somehow, um, I'll take the time. 
shelf for a shy person like myself who <laughs> does not want to reach out and invite someone to launch. What are the, how else does that So, I have actually kind of three different looks at when you say what works. Um, you know, there's this question of what does it mean for the field? Uh, what it, what changes because we have a more inclusive community? Um, we are supporting some work at New America that is looking at this. We have some theories. I mean, looking at who has led negotiations for the U.S. in arms control these past two rounds. Looking at who took a leadership position in ban treaty negotiations, in part because you know there were questions about whether this was something that you know those who have been in the field a long time wanted to do. I mean, I think there is some actual interesting stories, quality, because it is such a small sample that could come out of what the actual impact is of you know whose interests are represented and what does it mean for you know when we think about national security protecting every you know protecting many different populations not just the capitals of countries um, so and then in terms of what works well how do organizations change how do you create you seal up the leaks in the pipeline to create a better better pipeline um, you know I think the number one thing is uh, Boards and senior staff leadership have to make this their issue. So Plowshares is doing this not because I came along and was like, this is my issue, we're definitely gonna do this. It was because the president of our organization and our board is 100% behind it and they think it's something that we should be moving faster on. Period, full stop. And that's the only way an organization is going to change. It shouldn't be on the junior staff to try to change it. Um, so, you know, and then the, the next question that comes with it is then how do you institutionalize it, which this becomes an organizational change thing, not necessarily, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion is this unique thing. Um, so that's kind of how I've seen it. Um, and I think the other piece of it too, from what works in the business sector, sponsorships, not mentorships, sponsorships, where it is your duty once you, you know, if, once you decide that that's the person you're going to sponsor, it is your duty to advocate for them for different opportunities. Because um, with mentorship, there's a little bit of a, it's volunteer, it doesn't apply all the time, like what actually are my responsibilities to the person I am mentoring? When you talk about sponsorship, that's much more clear. Um, and that usually works in larger organizations, but I think there's still ways that that model can be adopted um, for the non-proliferation field. And then for me personally, I mean, it's really funny that Michelle brought up NGP. I am an NGP alum. And I would not have gotten into the non-proliferation field if it wasn't the active work of the Department of Energy reaching out to try and recruit. I came from the middle of the country, very different background. This is not something my family does. I would not be here if it was not those programs. That said, there have been a lot of challenges of like, what does a career path look like? How do you go from government to outside government? Where do you go once you get outside government? Um, you know, and, and uh, Part of it has just been locked in the things that I know I've stumbled across. But, you know, a lot of those opportunities have come through talking to peers, talking to mentors. Um, and so, and I think that's where the challenge comes from, in, in part, right? It's a recognition that um, you do have to put yourself out there. This is not a space that is conducive for, you know, sitting back and letting things come to you, and, you know, there's a real question, is that something we should change, how do we make it so that you don't have to do so much work to try to stay in the field, but I would say at this point, I, you know, there are things that others should be doing, you know, all of us should be doing, because I think, you know, it's the other piece, right, foundations are not, they're a part of the same community, 
what we look like, how we staff. I mean, all of those things that Alex is talking about apply to us as well. Um, and so, you know, I think there's some things that we can do in a, in a shared way, definitely. But it's it's the responsibility of the community as a whole, not just on, on those things. Uh, thank you for that. Um, Richard, just on what well, I want to turn to the audience here in a second, uh, but just on this theme of success stories, uh, you and I had a quick conversation earlier about uh, Hudson's internship program and some of the unique things that, can you, can you say a few words about that? Sure, and just a reminder, when we transition to the broader level, if people uh, want to ask a question or make a comment, just email to me at wbitcwhites at hudson.org as long as you Yeah, the, the, the one, uh, one uh, aspect of Hudson has been a very broad internship program that uh, it's, it involves a lot of people, and it's a bit different than most in the retirement century alone. So you don't need to be DC, NBC, it's virtual. We allow people to drop in, drop out. Um, some of the people are here, a lot of them um, are not, but are watching online. Um, and it, it, I didn't design it this way, but it would seem to be that, that kind of structure has been helpful for getting uh, people who have. Um, for example, want to transition into the field or family responsibilities or can't afford to come to DC to participate. So, in theory, and I hope it works with you, and Dr. Nick, how this kind of a mechanism could help pursue some of the goals we're talking about. That's very cool. Uh, all right, we're going to turn to the audience here in two seconds, but let me just add, let, let me just ask one more question of the panel here, and then we can jump in on this. Um, um, but specifically, I would like to hear actually from Alex and Michelle. Yeah, Michelle. Um, uh, on these sort of, you know, as we project, where, where do we go from here? I mean, what are the remaining, maybe Alex's questions for you, what are sort of the remaining questions that the funding community has around the diversity and inclusion space and as we set ourselves up? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned sort of what is that? What is the problem? What are the problems, I should say? Um, uh, what are the root causes? How do you address them? How do you benchmark them? How do you measure that you're making progress towards them? Um, uh, yeah, I think those are sort of the biggest remaining questions. I mean, to your point earlier, Brian, you know, what are the what are the what's the sort of Chinese menu of options of how do you tackle these? But you know, you can't unless you have a, a sense of the problem and defining the problem. It's, it's hard to sort of chip away here and then chip away here, and then you're not really actually getting at it. So um, I think that that's the biggest remaining. And I think there is some to your earlier earlier point or question is um, you know. And Bonnie, you, you talked a little bit about this as well. Is um, can we? Is there a comprehensive analysis um, in our specific sector about um, where we're at? Sort of what's the baseline, and then what can we be doing to address that baseline challenge or those challenges? Um, so those are the. I mean, those are big questions, um, but they remain. Michelle, what more can your agency be doing? Um, so. Again, I've been there for a long time, and I've seen over the years having the fellowship program in my in my specific division, uh, defense and cooperation and gender. It's it's been very successful in bringing in women. So now in my division, it's 50-50. Um, so it's I think it's a good model to work to bring in uh, you know, more people of color. 
this is a this is a developmental opportunity. So you're not locked into hiring this person. So this is a chance. This is a time to give someone a chance to excel because this is a it's a year. You know, you, you can see what the person can do, um, but then you don't have to hire the person at the end of the year. And so. I think the NGFP has been a really good model for us uh, in terms of gender. I think also work in terms of uh, you know, racial and ethnic diversity. Mm -hmm. And another MSI project, uh, obviously, specifically focused on minority servicing institutions and diverse, helping to diversify our labs. Again, as I mentioned, our labs you know, play a key role in supporting our non-proliferation work. So I think just Strengthening those programs uh, for NGFP, strengthening our outreach uh, to more MSIs, uh, and just continuing our outreach to regional, strong regional universities as well. Is that number? Number of our, our fellows are from regional universities. Thank you. Um, so Dover, take us out. Give us the bumpers. What is the? Give us. Give your brandies and the uh, audience here uh, and tuning in across the world. Uh, that can, what is the one thing they can be doing? One kind of tangible action that they can take. Um, or they, they can, they can, they can actually think about the problem or if they're already thinking about it. Share what they're doing. Um, you know, share what works for your organization. Share what challenges you've seen. I mean, I think the other piece of it is, is this is where foundations are on. You know, at a thirty thousand foot view, and for that reason, I don't know necessarily what some of the frontline challenges are. Those are helpful, um, you know, and we will be putting in questions in our proposals in this coming year and in our reporting to help try to capture this information. Um, we will be making it clear as well how we consider gender when we um, evaluate and vet the proposals. So, you know, the way we look at it is, at least you in my area, through the life cycle of the proposal process. Who are you soliciting projects from? What's the topic? Who's leading on it? What are, you know, what do the activities look like and who are they working with? What are the, what's the reporting? Um, you know, and in each of those is a, a point at which we can incorporate a gender lens into it. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're always happy to share what we're doing, how we're thinking of it, because we do think of this as a community challenge, not just a classroom. So no one gets a uh, free cup of coffee and power bar at the Hudson Institute. <laughs> so we really want to hear from you uh, all as well. So please, sir. Right. Yeah, my name is Benny Garcia, and thank you to Michelle and also the ambassador for um, telling me about this group and the great work you do. One thing I was curious about is uh, you talked about the pipeline coming in, but I see this in other areas, particularly in government. But what, uh, what is being done for you know, to take folks from the mid-level to the senior level? I think it's very good you're asking, you know, who's leading this team, what are the members of the team? But I'm just curious if there are success stories or things that we've learned does work. Because I'm not, you know, yeah, things are a lot more hopeful than I am And I'm thankful for that. But I think I would have liked to have seen more advancement as far as folks going from the mid-level to the senior level. I have my own ideas, but I'm curious if you all could share about you know, how do we, it's great to get everybody in, but 
if they don't move up, that they would leave for Friday would be great question. So if I'm going to propose, because this is a non-corporation panel, at the end of the day, we're going to murder a couple of questions here. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? Well done. We'll just take a couple, and then we'll, we'll, we'll come back to the panel. Okay. Okay. Um, I just wanted, it's a bit of a comment and also a bit of a question. I just graduated with my master's degree in security studies, and many others um, that graduated in my class uh, do not have a job and are still working at Whole Foods or a bar or whatever. And that is very intimidating to people looking at wanting to get into this type of Hey, I can move to BC, I can spend all this money, I can get all these internships, and I still don't have a job at the end? Nope, I'm choosing something else. So I think that that's something that we really need to think about, and one of the things that's very much worked for the people who do have jobs in that program, in fact, all of us who have jobs, got it by getting an internship and then converting that into a job. And, you know, that's hard. I mean, you can have a lot of internships before that actually happens, and that's not the organization's fault. It's just there's not a lot of positions open for them. So what are your guys' thoughts about how do you help create those opportunities and how to make this pipeline still attractive to people who aren't seeing jobs at the end of the Thank you for that. Uh, and then we'll take one more right here, man. Um, I think when you talk about, um, I think I'm going to go off of your question, but I have about entry points. Um, there may be hiring challenges, I know that we've been touched upon that. Particularly challenges of trying to get into the government with security clearances. There are people with diverse backgrounds out there. I think it's just difficult to just secure a clearance and then move on. What can we do to just make it easier for people with diverse backgrounds to take that big jump into government positions? We're really grateful for Simpsons Institute, Hudson Institute, and other think tank communities that take this in. But what about the government and whatever's Great question. All right, so three questions here on the table. One in terms of mid-career advancement, one in terms of that very early pipeline and, and creating opportunities, and then one specifically, Commissioner uh, uh, on, uh, you know, is the clearance procedure a barrier in and of itself to, uh, uh, you know, to encouraging uh, greater diversity and opportunities? So, who would like to go first? So the mid-career, I'm, I'm really glad you, you brought this up, um, and, and I, I really encourage you to read the report that CMAS put out on it, because they detail exactly what the challenges were for that mid-career and moving into to senior leadership. I have some of my own theories. Um, I think the most recent election, for example, politics aside, it meant that because of the lens that the administration was applying of who actually was um, accepted into the administration meant that those from most think tanks and most standard feeders into the government were not going in. And so you had a bunch of people come out, you had no one from those spots going in, and so literally there is a lack of spots where you do in D.C. tend to have turnover Year, you know, every four years. And so, and I think those points are really key um, for when to, to change things. They're a unique opportunity um, to change the makeup of an organization. Um, but I think your point about intentionality is, is key. And, and, and you know, I, I haven't been in the field long enough to say how intentional 
um, various organizations have been about that. But I, you know, I think going forward, at least from, from my organization's perspective, trying to ask that question before we make that decision um, to make sure that we are considering where our own biases and blind spots may be coming into play is, is really important. Um, and in terms of the entry-level jobs, it's you're right. I mean, I'm affirming everything. It's it's difficult, and you know, it's it's a combination of hard work and luck. And it, you know, I think there's there's conversations that we can have about you know the shrinking number of foundations supporting this area, whether the models that organizations use to raise money, um, you know, is is catching up, you know, is, is up to the needs and that the community has. Um, and so this is where the question about diversity actually become leads into the other conversations about organizational strength that are already going on. And what I would hope is that this conversation doesn't become siloed, um, because I think it should be taking place within the broader discussions that a board and organization may have of like, what are we actually doing to prepare ourselves for the next five years of challenges? Others? Michelle? So I'll, I'll jump in on the, the clearance issue because clearance is, getting a clearance can be lengthy. And our fellowship program, uh, we we have people apply early because we try to get them their clearances. Um, and so folks who've traveled a lot and lived overseas, it just takes longer. I mean, that's, you know, they need to do a lot of background checks. So the process can be lengthy, and so that can be a deterrent. I'm not just going, you know, it can be a deterrent to folks who think, well, I need to get a job. Will I get my clearance in time for the start date of my job? You know, if I can't get a clearance, then, then what? You know, like, I may have gotten a job, but if it's contingent on me getting a clearance, um, and I don't think, I think it's going to take a year, or, you know, I can't wait that long. And so that is that is a challenge, um, and I think we in our fellowship program try to get people to apply. We have very early application deadlines so that we can start working on appearances early on. Um, but usually, folks don't have the clearance by the time of the start date of the fellowship. But we have people sitting in unclassified space; they can still do some work for us, and we make sure when we're uh, we have an unclassified list of duties that people can work on while they wait to get their clearance. They're still getting paid. So one of our fellowship is one of the few, I think that that kind of you, you can still do some work while you wait for your clearance to come through. And I think that's why it's so attractive and why it's so competitive. Um, you know, on jobs after fellowships, our fellows have had a phenomenal rate of being getting employment if they do not stay with us and getting employed by other employers because the fellowship has such a, you know, it's a good reputation. Um, but I can see that, you know, some other fellowships you finish and you may not have something waiting at the end of that is, you know, so we could lose people that way out of the pipeline. They may have that first or even second uh, internship or fellowship and then they can't get something permanent and they leave the field. Um, and this last one, mid-career. Um, you know, it's, it's, it goes back to my few things, mentoring and networking. I know I'm harping on it, but you know, if you're not moving up in your agency or your organization, maybe you need to consider a different path. And that's where the mentoring 
that's where the networking is so key. Um, because so, at some point in time, you could be, you're in an organization, you feel that maybe there's no room for growth. It doesn't matter if it's government, NGO, private sector, anyone that considered for change, that's where the mentors and the networks become so important. So as soon as you, <laughs> so you get into speed, you really need to get yourself out there and talking to people. Uh, see, so as a Canadian, I can attest to the uh, barriers to entry. Which we have different problems. We could be in a shooting war by the end of the week. So that's right. Let's do this all together. Maybe let's go right here, and then we'll go over the team. Uh, sorry, I wanted in late. So uh, sorry, I'm already addressed this. Um, and this is kind of come up in a couple of different contexts. But I wanted to ask if. Um, you know, there's kind of the fellowship issue and getting the first job issue. But over the course of my past few years here, what I've really seen um, has not just been, okay, women kind of come into the field or women are interested in the field and get that first job. And then by year three, they leave the field entirely. Um, and especially, and it's not just, you know, it's women, it's younger women, it's more diverse women of color to the point where um, from when I started interning and then got my first position, most of those people who were kind of in my cohort are no longer in the field at all. So I just wanted to ask, you know, your thoughts on that and whether that's something that organizations are addressing or thinking about is why that drop-off is occurring or what is leading to, to that. And would you tell these fine folks who you are? Sure. Uh, I'm Deepika Chowdhury with Reading Media. Hi. I have sort of a different kind of question, but similar. So we talked about entering the pipeline and we talked about the leaky pipeline, but what about on-ramps along the way? So I retired from the military last year. I'm in law school. Um, I really want to work in this field. Internships, more than happy to do them, but they seem like kind of an odd fit for somebody at my point in my career where I don't feel like the person who hired me is getting all they can get out of me, and maybe I'm not getting all I can get out of the experience as well. Um, how do you how do you work this sort of on ramp or mid career sort of switch um, into the field? I'll stand because I can't see the panel. I'm Sarah Kuchesnani from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. Uh, Michelle Dashpools, I have a question specifically for you. It's very different from what's been discussed. I'm more curious on the international level. So you mentioned in your role, you engage with a lot of foreign partners. And so my question is, when you have these kind of discussions on non-proliferation, international security, do you still see the absence of women behind the table? Do you still see the... Like, so I'm wondering, is this just a United States problem? I mean, I don't think it is. But I'm wondering, you know, when you go across the world and you have these kinds of conversations, are we seeing the same trends? Because if it's a global problem, I'm wondering if any of you on the panel, but especially you, Michelle, like, are there things that we can do globally? Thank you. That's a great question. We're going to cheat one more. Thank you. Kelsey Duffenberg with the Arms Control Association. Thank you for an excellent discussion. Uh, from some of my own experiences, it often feels like in this field that urgency is the enemy of diversity and that when things get very hectic, when things get very frantic, a lot of very well-meaning ideas about the promotion of women and the promotion of diversity kind of get thrown out the window. So I'd be interested in the panel's thoughts on how we address that so we look at these questions in a more sustainable manner. And then I guess a specific subset of that is how do you then ensure kind of on the grant-making side that kind of what is put on paper for these metrics is actually kind of followed through. And again, that comes to urgency from kind of throwing things out the window. Thank you. Question, uh, Kelsey. Okay, so uh, questions on uh, retention, questions uh, on on-ramps in terms of mid-career uh, professionals who are looking to gain access 
uh, to the field. Question on kind of geographic, uh, you know, uh, breadth of this challenge. Is this a unique challenge to the United States, or have we seen success stories elsewhere? Um, and then one on uh, kind of prioritization and ensuring that there is uh, sustainability of these efforts as well. Who? I'll jump in. I'll jump in. I'll jump in. Um, okay, so I'll just sort of take one of them. Um, in terms of the, the global Cesaris question, uh, we are a global network of funders. Uh, we have European-based funders, African-based funders, um, and here in the U.S., obviously. Uh, and it's diversity is, is different. It, there are different challenges in different countries in terms of yeah, what yeah, just how you tackle this. Um, so that's a struggle for us and with our membership. How do you address this so that it's meaningful to whatever their context is? Um, and yeah, and I don't. It's just it's just different. It's not the U.S. is better or worse or whatever. It's just different. Um, it's not exactly what you were asking, Michelle. So that's for, I'll let you answer that. Um, and in terms of a mid-career, I don't know. I, I went straight through to grad school, but I had friends who were, you know, teachers and went to grad school to sort of use it as a pivot. Um, and they did internships just like I did as a 21-year-old. You know, they were 31 or 41, and they were doing internships. It's not a satisfactory answer. I don't know. If, I mean, maybe Brian has a better, you know, maybe you have ideas, maybe you have, you see more folks, but, I, you know, we'll take all sorts. Um, the age or the sort of that, I don't think much matters, uh, at least for us. Um, so, I'll stop there. Michelle, do you want to? Sure. Um, so, I would have to kind of talk to my colleagues to, to give you a better answer on that, but from, from my experience, uh, I, I have seen. I've been working um, mainly on, on China-related issues. I have seen some senior women across the, the table from me, and I've sat across the table with just men. Um, and so it, it, can, it can vary, but I um, can't get, really give you a good answer on that. I'd have to, to kind of consult with my colleagues who work with, with some other countries. Um, people leaving after two to three years, I think that, that is a, a challenge. I think probably more so in, and I'm just guessing, in the nonprofit sector, because I think when people get into the government sector, they usually tend to stay a little longer. So I, I have to turn to my colleagues to get their insights on, on the nonprofit sector, but I think when we get folks into our sector, the work, work's exciting, it's challenging. We're working on U.S. national security issues and people, the mission, uh, you know, is very exciting, so people tend to stay um, with us once it's hard I think it's hard to get into the into the field in, in, in government but I think once people are there they tend to stay and most young men that's a tough one and that's where again you know I know it's like a broken record but you know, talking to people in the field admin for how do you get is, is there a space for me you know, to, to come and how was the best way for me to do that? To really, I would talk to a variety of people we would commit to any one internship or fellowship to just see, you know, after the end of this, is there something viable uh, long term? Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, so looking at, I think it's kind of interesting that three year drop off questions would be the, the mid career question are kind of in the same ballpark. 
as you can tell, there are no satisfactory answers. Mid-career in general, I think that layer in the NGO community is just a tough problem. I would be curious to hear your thoughts on it because you probably think about it more, more closely than I do. Um, you know, I think there are fellowships that you can do, you know, I think um, encouraging, you know, looking at opportunities on the Hill, looking at opportunities in government, you know, having a couple different places in the sector, um, I think there's value to, to moving around, at least that's, that's worked for me, and sometimes um, another sector may have, that's still working on these issues, may have more opportunities um, than another one does at the moment. Um, you know, and, and then to pick up on, on Kelsey's question about urgency being the enemy of diversity, it's, very, it's interesting you say that. It's, so for us, the way we, I can only respond to how we tackled it. And that was, we set year-end goals for ourselves that we had to report out to our board on how we're doing. And so, you know, it meant that I was responsible for, our team was responsible for actually monitoring the progress we were making towards those goals. And since we have a board meeting approximately every three months, you know, it, it does force you to make sure that you're doing it. We try to build as much of the work as we can into the points where we know we're going to be doing the work, which is why I was describing the proposal cycle. Um, you know, if we can add in some of these conversations and these questions and actually build it into the processes we're already doing, um, similar to the way clean people marketing, market things to you, where they know you're going, they have certain points where they can say, and then we're gonna insert this, I swear it's okay. Um, you can insert this product and like, that's why you're going to use Febreze, because you always take a look around the room and you know, take satisfaction in a job well done. If I can find those same intuitive points in our grant making cycle to make it so that this isn't a burden, this is just what you do, and it fits in with the flow of the work, it's more likely to be sustained and you're more likely to maintain progress. And the question on grant making, what's on paper and what happens, that's just a question more broadly. It's not just this. I mean, things like questions on diversity, I recognize everyone wants, it's a scary subject and everyone wants to put forward their best image, their best foot. Um, but, you know, and, and there's only so much that I can do as a grant maker. I have to trust the, the grantee and the partner on this. You know, you, you try to have as many conversations as you can and I think the way I approach it is share my own questions, my own challenges, um, and try to make that the norm as opposed to the, but how is it going to affect, you know, whether or not we get a grant. Um, and so that's the other reason we're going to be putting up um, a list of just you know, a basic description of, of how we actually incorporate it so it isn't so scary. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it, it's not like you can, the grant agreements are a magic wand that can be used to make sure that things happen. Um, or else we probably would have reached all of our solved all the problems in non a long time ago. Thank you, Michelle. Richard, do you uh, want to jump in on any of these? No, I don't know. I've seen problems and uh, at all the different points in the country saying that the fact that you're really good, you can make a lot of money in the private sector. Um, the, I guess the one the thing I have noticed is that the, the public gains administration, it was, uh, it, they did take Something like they did. Many. They took like the lane challenge. Yes, but it was yeah. much fewer. But I think more serious than hiring raises, and it took them so long to find the senior people. They were way back now. That process seems to be opening up. So I'm hoping there'll be more openings for mid and 
younger people, uh, people who are wanting to work with this administration to go in and do that. And, and of course, we have congressional elections, and that when people speculate about a change, loving you there. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, Alice, I believe uh, walk over to hear what you said about the effort that you went through this uh, to get to hire your intern, and thinking creatively, and, and, and understanding that it may take a little more time to do it, because I think it's too easy for organizations to just say, just use the usual steps, which are not always successful. So I think we need to approach this in a way, in a different way, and think about it creatively, and that's the way to make change. So I, I want to make sure you've heard what you said about that. Uh, Michelle, I just want to make sure you what you said about the work that you've been doing and effort that, that the NNSA has been uh, doing with the um, reaching to um, different colleges and universities, getting outside the subway, getting outside the coast. I mean, uh, you go inside the U.S., you know, uh, I think is uh, another creative way to try to uh, bring in diversity. So I think that's a lesson learned. Um, and that's something that I appreciate those for. Uh, so I want them to hear that. Richard, I love what you said about this is a, this is something we can actually try to do something about. I think I, I mean I think that is it, it's always good to, to approach a problem with an understanding that we can reach. And I like that you said and some of these are the problems that we can talk about. And we do that, that's what we do. You know, because if you don't talk about it, you can't try to make a difference when we come on our problems. Um, but still there are problems that we can try to it's not like what you said. Michelle, I like your point about uh, working with the CEOs and the people because a lot of it is culture. And um, a lot of the reasons why I think we lose people after we get them in, there's, there's two challenges. One is getting people in and then keeping them. And both are difficult. And too often I think people say, we got them in, now we're okay. But people don't stay because the culture may not be accepted. And the only way they're going to be accepted is if people on the top say, this has got to be the way it's going to be, which means it has to permeate everything in the organization. Not just in bringing them in, but how do you feel comfortable? One of my issues that I want to explore this fall and I work with Christian and Bright is um, there's a great program, the Pickering program, you know, for example, and, and uh, the programs that bring people to say, well, where are they? I mean, I was, I was an ambassador of State Department for almost eight years in the board administration. Where are all the people? Where, where is everyone? What's happening to all the people that's coming in? So my question is, I think there's a lot of cultural issues at state. I think there's a lot of cultural issues in other departments, uh, and, and in general, whatever. But we have to create a culture where people stay. And that comes from the top. And it has to permeate everything. And Brian, you're just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to work with you and Richard and others who want to be involved in this conversation beyond today on um, picking up some of the great points you guys have put forward and thinking creatively about how do we make things happen and how do we take what you did, Alex, and make that a, a way that we do it all the time. You know, so that we can bring in more women, bring in more people of color into not just this field, which um, I find one of the more difficult fields uh, to bring in diversity, uh, but also how do we do another area of people Thank you. So 15 minute break now and then Thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. 
please visit WCAPS.org. That's WCAPS.org.